Well, morning, everybody. I want to welcome the Kenya team back. They got back late yesterday afternoon, and just like the Kenya team, to have Mary back there serving on the light board at 7 a.m. this morning. She's somewhere between Nairobi and Indiana time, but there she is. I think Lacey's downstairs serving children's ministry folks and probably a bunch of other team members serving all about. But Kenya team, we're glad you're back. We understand the initial reports are that it was very meaningful on multiple levels. So we're looking forward to hearing more about it. So next Sunday, we're going to take some time and you'll see some video footage from the trip and we'll chat a little about some of the takeaways from that. But thank you as a body for praying for them. I think it was a a really meaningful trip as those times are. Discipleship missions, next generation, and when you go cross-cultural together as a team like that, it's kind of the sweet spot in the center there. So open up your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 13. We're talking about first things first. If you hang out with the Kenya team at all, you'll probably hear some dialogue about first things first, getting reset off of a trip like that. And I want to begin with a quote from N.T. Wright. If you haven't pulled out your note sheet yet, going to need to pull that out, fire up the app on your phone. You can pull up the note sheet that way uh, to stay along with me with some of the quotes and the scriptures this morning. N.T. Wright, in his book, After You Believe, writes this. Now stay with me. I know it's early on a Sunday morning. I know the sun hasn't shown itself for weeks, but stay with me, all right, in this. I think this is, uh, gives us context to what we're entering into, not only this morning, but for the next two Sundays. What are we here for in the first place? The fundamental answer is to become genuine human beings, reflecting the God in whose image we're made, and doing so in worship on the one hand, and in mission, its full and large sense on the other, and that we do this not least by following Jesus. The way this works out is that it produces through the work of the Holy Spirit a transformation of character. This transformation will mean that we do indeed keep the rules, though not out of a sense of externally imposed duty, but out of character that has been formed within us. Follow this now. And it will mean that we do indeed follow our hearts and live authentically, but only when, with that transformed character, fully operative, like an airline pilot with a lifetime's experience, the hard work up front bears fruit in spontaneous decisions and actions that reflect what has been formed deep within. And in the wider world, the challenge we face is to grow and develop a fresh generation of leaders in all walks of life whose character has been formed in wisdom and public service, not in greed for money or power. So church, that is the work to which we've been called and commissioned by Jesus to be about. To raise up a generation of men and women whose spontaneous decisions flow for the glory of God and the good of the world around us. That's what we're doing all together. That's what local church life is all about. That's why it's so important, parents. That's why we've got to keep the kids engaged Sunday after Sunday in local church life. Students, that's why you've got to stay 
tightly connected together with a group of peers who were all in for Jesus. And adults, young and old, that's why our regular gathering togethers as a body shouldn't appear on the optional list if you're a follower of Jesus. This should be tier one, is absolutely necessary as the breathing mechanism of our life that we've got to get together and we've got to get in the word together and sing these songs together and be reminded who we are and who he is and why we're here. Because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this world today. Like N.T. Wright asked, what is all this about? Why am I here in the first place? You're here for the glory of God and you're here for the good of the world around you. That's why you're here. And if you haven't noticed yet, our default human condition, which Hunter gave us a great picture for this morning, we can think of the tapeworm inside of us, right? The default human condition is this. The Bible term for the tape room ana analogy that Hunter gave us is inherited sinful nature. There you go. You can read Romans 6, 7, and 8 with a whole new tapeworm metaphor in your head now. But you're born with this mechanism inside of you that just wants to drain the life out of you. You don't have to work at that. Sin has seeped into our habits. It's seeped down into our routines. The metaphor I'm going to use for the rest of the day, because I want you to kind of get the tapeworm thing out of your head for a moment. The metaphor for the rest of the day is like a, the current of the river of life is flowing a direction. If you just jump in the canoe of your life and you just pick up the oars and you just let that canoe float where it wants to float, have you noticed that it doesn't go towards God-honoring and Christ-centered things? Hello, anybody else notice that? You just float along. Just, I, well... I don't want to recommend this experiment, but just kind of imagine if you're just unplug, right? You just stop going to church, you stop reading your Bible, you stop praying, you start hanging out with people who are connected to Jesus, you stop listening to songs that fill your soul, you just stop all of that, and then you go at that for a month or two or three. Do you wake up one day and go, man, I am more fully alive and spiritually dialed in than I've ever been? Of course not. What is that? That's the river of this current called life that since Genesis chapter 3 we've been living in. This is how, when it comes to money and possessions, how you don't have to learn how to clutch and grasp and be greedy and selfish and possessive and anxious about running out. You don't have to learn how to do that with money and stuff. Parents, this is why your beautiful little Susie or Johnny that you bring home from the hospital. And they begin to grow up and they hit this toddler stage. And then they begin to realize they've got a domain that they can claim as what? Their own. It's my toy box. It's my doll. It's my stuff. You didn't have to teach them that. Actually, they learned it by just watching us as parents. Because as parents, we just get bigger toy boxes. You don't grow out of that. Anybody with me? You don't grow out of that automatically you just kind of come with this inherited way of relating to money and stuff and possessions that's drifting in the current of life in a way that your character is being formed you see what N.T. Wright brings up is this reality we've talked about in here many times every single one of us is undergoing some kind of character formation it's happening the question isn't whether that's occurring. The question is just what kind? If you just want to stay floating along with the currents of our, and our values of our world today, 
it shouldn't shock us then that there'll be certain spontaneous decisions that flow out of our heart. And we don't need a lot of commentary on that. Plenty of things scrolling across the newsfeed about how that looks. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, and as N.T. Wright points out, there's another way you can go with this in the hands of the Holy Spirit. That you can have a life and a heart and a character that goes more Christ-like. That this should be normal Christian life. But the challenge is that sin has seeped down into the river of life, into our routines and habits, and so we've got to unlearn what is a default natural condition, and then we've got to learn some new practices and habits. So the question this morning and for the next couple weeks, here's what we're going to dive into. How do you go from being a person who is greedy and possessive and anxious about not having enough and preoccupied with wanting what you don't have? How do you go from being that kind of a person when related to money and stuff to being the kind of person that Jesus models, which is generous and kind and gracious and grateful and content? How does that happen? Well, that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to look at it through these lenses. Today, we're going to talk about why and how. Why does God care so much about this topic that I know you were just super excited when you heard that we were gonna be talking about money and possessions and stuff for the next couple weeks. I mean, just went off inside of you like, yes, I I couldn't wait for this. Why is it that God and Jesus talk so much about this? We're gonna get into that. And then we're gonna talk about how. How does he want us to approach this? And the whole banner of giving. Next week, rubber meets the road next week, we're gonna talk about how much, how much should we give, and to whom. And then the third week, which I'm super excited about because you're going to be involved in all of that, we're going to open up the text lines and we're going to take live text questions and interactions on all of these topics. And I'll do my best to respond to as many of them as you will gracefully ask the questions. I know that you will. And we'll have someone up here on stage with me and they'll just kind of field through the questions and group them together and then I'm going to teach on the treasure principle two weeks from now and then we'll just dive into some interaction on the topic. So you can be storing up your questions. How's that? for a couple weeks from now. Does that sound good? All under the banner of first things first. Because as C.S. Lewis said, if we get first things first, what happens to second things? They get thrown in. You put second things first, you lose what? Both first and second things. No better topic than that than money and finance. So here's how Hebrews 13.5, under the banner of why, why does God talk so much about this? Hebrews 13.5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you see in your Bibles there the word your lives in the NIV? Some of your translations may say your character. In the Greek, it's the word tropos. It's where we get our English word tropical. It literally means this. There's a certain environment of your interior world that can be fostered that causes certain things to grow and flourish and that chokes out other things. Are you tracking with me? So here's what Hebrews 13 is saying is, hey, you you keep free from a love of money because when you do that, it creates a certain tropos in your interior world, in your life, and in your character that causes things to flourish like greed and anxiety about running out and covetousness and clutching and grasping. All of that comes from a tropos in here that the love of money helps foster. 
And then also you get in this picture, right, when you think about what is Jesus offering, he's like, hey, there's another way to go about this. You don't have to fall in love with money. There is a prioritization you have with the kingdom of God and of Christ that begin to reset the tropos of your interior world where spontaneous decisions then begin to flow out differently. This is what Paul's getting at in 1 Timothy 6. This is how he said it to his young understudy, Timothy. He said, for the love of money, same phrase as Hebrews 13, is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What's the piercing with many griefs? I think Paul is getting at what Hebrews is getting at. He's pointing to the tropos of our lives and say, hey, if you fall in love with money and then you're gonna pierce your life with all these griefs, you're gonna create an environment in your interior world where certain things are just gonna flourish and in that river of life and you drift down that way, you're gonna wake up one day and go, how did I become like that? So this answer, first answer to the question, why does God talk so much about this? Because he's really, really concerned with the kind of person we're becoming. And he knows how we handle money and possessions has a great impact on the kind of person we become. I want you to think of giving, the giving away of our resources to God. I want you to think of the act of giving like a thermostat for your soul. It helps monitor the environment of your interior world. That's what giving does. And it helps then kill off certain things, and it helps foster the growth of certain things. Like it can kill, you know there's certain environments, there's certain climates, there's certain places that you live where just nothing grows. Like Indiana in late January, where you feel like everything's dead, right? Some of you go, I think I saw the sun like three weeks ago and it's still up there and you get pictures from some of your friends who are in another part of the country or the world, right? You go, there it is. And stuff's flourishing there. And then you wake up here and it's kind of Groundhog Day all over again, right? Where there's certain environments that cause, that choke the life out of things. Do you know what chokes the life out of listening to the promptings of the Spirit and following a leading from God? A love of money will do that. That'll choke the life out. You won't be sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit. Why? Because there's a, a tropos in your interior world that's created, that's just fostering this preoccupation with money and stuff and possession and clutching and grasping and coveting that you're, it's your ears are buried under all those layers. No way you can hear the whisper of the Spirit prompting. You see that? It kills certain things. And that's why giving then the call to give and why God cares so much about it, it doesn't have anything to do with what he gains out of it. This morning I was praying in Psalm 24, the opening line of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Boy, did I need any more fuel to come into this morning with than that prayer this morning. God basically saying, hey, I don't need a dime from any of the people on this planet. God's not sitting up on his throne, wringing his hands, wondering if he's got enough resources to get done what he wants to get done in this world. That's not the picture. But God calls us to give, not because of what he gains from it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He's got everything he needs to get done what he wants to get done. So he calls us to give, not because of what he gains, but because of what happens to us when we give. 
He could choose to get all kinds of things done in this world any way he wants to. But he says, you know what? I'm really, really concerned about the tropos of my people's hearts. So I'm going to invite them to be a part of something that's going to be like a thermostat on their soul. They're going to have to get into this new habit, this new routine of giving a portion away of what we have been given. And by doing that, it starts setting the thermostat in here. It starts rearranging the environment. It starts causing some things to grow and it kills off other things. So second response to the question, why? Why does God care so much about this? First, he really cares about the kind of person we're becoming, so he's gonna talk a lot about possessions and money. Secondly, it's because the picture you get from Genesis to Revelation is that giving and living in the kingdom of God, they go hand in hand. Living everyday life with Jesus and giving are one and the same in the scriptures. All the way back to Exodus. Think about an Exodus when God frees his people from slavery. 400 years they've been in slavery. For 400 years, they're there, they've been oppressed. He releases them from that. Do you know the book of Exodus records and why it's tough sledding when you're reading through it at times is a lot of structure and organization in the book of Exodus. Why? Because he's bringing order to a group of people, several hundred thousand, who've been living in oppressed slavery, who haven't had to make decisions. Now they're free. Do you know what freedom brings without structure and organization? Generally anarchy. And so what you have is God saying, hey, I need to help my people get some organization. He introduces the priest office and role. He introduces festivals and celebrations. He introduces the concept of a worship center. Hey, I want you to build a worship center called a tabernacle at the center of all of this. So he gives them some order and some structure to help their nation live with him and relate to him. And then he says, well, here's how you're going to pay for it. Look, Exodus Chapter 25, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. And then Exodus 35, Moses tells the whole community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord, everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver and bronze. Silver, gold, and bronze would be like their currency of that day. And the same thing Jesus picks up on the New Testament, Matthew chapter six, Sermon on the Mount. Unbelievable teaching of Jesus, and he comes towards the end, he says, hey, when you pray and when you fast, we often talk about those, but how about, he also says in the same sequence, when you give, Matthew six, three and four, and when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. So here in Jesus' mind, he's like, hey, if you're gonna live everyday life with me, Giving isn't a question of if, the question is just how much and how often. Because from Genesis to Revelation, if you're going to live life with God, then you're going to bring an offering to him. It's how it works. That to be in a worshiping, serving, loving relationship with this living God is to also bring an offering to him. They go hand in hand, and I suspect at the core of it is what we talked about a moment ago. It's Hebrews 13, 5, and it's the tropos of our interior world, and it's about making sure the kind of people who we're becoming reflect his heart and his character. There is no one more generous, more gracious, more giving than what God models for us in Jesus, and he wants his people to reflect that. 
So he calls us to give. Which is why around here, we talk about discipleship and stewardship in the same sentence. Do you know stewardship isn't like an add-on to discipleship? It's not like for you, you grow up in your faith and then you kind of deal with stewardship stuff. Stewardship is core. Stewardship and discipleship are one and the same thing. You can't grow as a disciple and not grow as a steward. It doesn't work that way. To grow as a disciple is to grow as a steward. They are the same thing. So that's why next Sunday we are launching a class, on sun, a discipleship class on Sunday morning at 8.30 called God Owns It All. And we're going to cap it at the first 15 people. So right now you can pull up your app and you can see how fast you are to be one of these 15. So if you go to the Grow tab, you click Classes, there's a Sign Up Genius right there. Led by two guys who I can't believe anybody in here wouldn't want to hang around with these two guys and get into this topic together. Guys who love Christ and are super smart when it comes to financial matters, and it's free. I can't fathom why people wouldn't want to participate in something like this to help grow in our discipleship when it comes to stewardship. So it's going to be six weeks, Sunday morning, 8.30 to 9.30. We're going to cap it at 15, so it's productive for that group of 15. We'll create a waiting list. Depending on the waiting list, they might offer it again. Why are we doing that? Because discipleship and stewardship are the same thing. God owns it all. And it's that picture of if you're going to live life with him, then you're going to figure out how this giving and living thing work in rhythm together. Which is, by the way, like Sunday mornings and what we're doing around here. And You know, like I think this morning Katie is working with the kids in their Discover stations, and I think they're teaching on John 10 and the security of their eternal life. And she sent me a text this morning and says, hey, and we're also getting into the topic of giving and stewardship and tithing with the kids. This isn't a just wait till you get grown up and figure it out thing. This is why it's integrated into children's ministry, why student ministry is so important. Why are the students having this conversation? Ian up in the loft this morning talking about Samuel and what it means to listen to God. They're going to be having conversation about giving and stewardship. And high school students in your life groups are going to be having dialogue about giving and stewardship. Why? Because it's central to your discipleship. When you're doing chores and you get an allowance, there's a part you can exercise giving. When you get your first job, you can exercise giving. This isn't when you get grown up and you go off to college and you get a real job and you get on your own and then you kind of figure out the stewardship thing. And that's not how this works. Ask any of us who are older about this. It doesn't do any good to kind of wait until the moment when you kind of get everything sorted out to step into that. You start it early because it's a part of living everyday life with Jesus. Disciples of Jesus bring an offering to him because it's a thermostat for the tropos of our interior world that helps certain things flourish and kills other things. That's why we do it. Which brings us to the how. The how does God expect us to do this? Three words under the how. 1 Timothy 6 again. It's a great text, by the way, on this whole topic. 1 Timothy 6. Paul says it this way, verse 17 and following, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. 
In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Isn't that a great text? Taking hold of the life that is truly life. And Paul ties it right into giving. And notice the verb he uses, command those. What does that tell you? What does that tell me? That tells me the current of the river is not going to be, I'm drifting into this. No one's going to wake up one day and just go, you know what, I'm just going to wake up and just, wow, just magically be generous and grateful and content. We've got to command, we've got to instruct, we've got to exhort, we've got to encourage, we've got to teach on this. And you say, well, pastor, it's a good thing I don't, I'm not connected to that text because if you've seen my bank account, I am not rich in this present world. I suspect Paul, in his early leadings and walk, wanderings around and starting churches, he was thinking rich in this present world had a whole new level of kind of barometer for it. In our world today, if you made $10,000 last year, you're in the top 16% of the richest people on the planet. If you made 30000 last year, top 1.2% of the richest people on the planet. 75,000 last year, which is the average household income of Boone County, top 0.11% of the world's wealth. You see, suburban North America, we've got a skewed view of what it means to be rich in this world, so I think Paul would reset it and say, hey, probably everyone in here, everyone who calls Eagle Church home would be in the category of rich in this present world at some level. And what's the danger he's bringing up? The danger is when you're rich in this present world that you can put your hope in that wealth. You can create a tropos of your interior world, fall in love with money, be all about coveting and greed and possessiveness and selfishness around it, be preoccupied with running out. You can get so caught up in that that you don't take hold of the life that is truly life. Do you see the danger? So he says, you've got to talk about this. You've got to teach on this. You've got to encourage. You've got to command. You've got to exhort. To what? To be generous. Generosity should be baseline intro Christianity development stuff. Like, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's baseline in how we handle our finances. Generosity. That we give generously. Not a miserly stinginess, which is the temptation of greed. Greed isn't just a, a running after stuff you don't have. Greed can also mask itself as a stinginess about what you do have. And there's a whole lot of that that runs around in local church world where under the banner of being a good steward is actually hiding being super stingy and in a, it's kind of masking greed. We're supposed to be generous and open-handed and everything I have is the Lord's. And we'll get into the details about how much next week, but the posture is one of openness and saying, hey, generosity's got a mark. This isn't graduate school Christianity. This is intro Christianity. This is baseline stuff. And if it's not going on, here's what Paul says. You're in danger of taking hold of life that is not truly life. You're in danger of putting your hope in something that's going to let you down and deeply disappoint. I remember mid-90s, first mission trip, I think Kendra and I went on as a married couple, first time in a third world country. We went to Haiti, medical mission trip. It was a great trip. We did some medical work, some dental work, and I remember one of the Haitian women during, uh, it was during the week, she said to us uh, while we were working together one day, she said, hey, do you want to join us for a prayer meeting tomorrow morning? I said, yeah, sure, we'll get together for a prayer meeting. She says, we get up and we get together and pray and worship for a bit before we head off to work in the morning. I said, sure, we'll do it. 
She said, great. And she pointed to her house like five down from where we were standing. She says, hey, just show up in the front yard of that house down there, 4.30 in the morning. Yeah, my face was like your face right now. Can you picture what it would be like if I called a prayer meeting at 4.30 in the morning? <laughs> I, was, I stood there like, oh, okay, all right. Uh, 4.30 in the morning and said to Kendra, said, honey, let's do that. We grabbed a couple other people, I don't know, five or six of us went down at 4.30 in the morning and we were walking down the street and you could hear the songs being sung even 4.30. We got there a few minutes before they were already singing. Worshiping, singing, they had a, a wood bowl in the center of this like dirt front yard and they're singing songs and they're praying and then a point comes where they reach into their pockets and they put some money in this dirt, this bowl, like wood bowl in the center and it's their offering. They're like, hey, we're trying to help some people around us who, who need some help and I just... I was just taken back by the whole experience, 4.30 in the morning, all these folks are gonna go off to work the whole day. They did it for about half an hour. And the older Haitian woman who kind of led the prayer meeting came up to me afterwards and she could tell I was taken back by the whole experience. And I said what the classic, you know, Western Christian American thing to say to someone in a third world country. Oh, we'll be praying for you. You know, I know what else to say. We'll be praying for you. And she, you know, she stopped me mid-sentence. She said, oh, no, what? Pastor Eric, actually, we'll be praying for you. And then she looked at me with these eyes, like right through me. You ever had someone just kind of looking through you? She said, because you, Pastor Eric, and the people in America are in the much more spiritually dangerous climate than we are down here. Because down here in Haiti, God is all we've got. And I stood there frozen. Who's helping who here? I'm down there to help them. She turns the table and says, hey, you're the one who's in the most dangerous soil of all. It was a modern day picture of 1 Timothy 6 saying, hey, Pastor Eric, we be careful now. You could be taking hold of something that's not truly life. It's like the air you breathe in suburban North America. You don't even realize it. And then you wake up one day and you put your hope in something. But she says, down here in Haiti, most of that stuff's all stripped away. God's all we've got. So we get together at 4.30 in the morning and we worship and we pray and we sing. And they were so spiritually alive at 4.30 in the morning. And they were giving an offering as an outflow of what's going on in their heart. I thought, there's a picture of the kingdom of God. That's normal Christian life. So generously is the first thing I think God would say. Hey, how we should approach this whole topic. And then joyfully should be the thing to add to generous. It should be a joyful generosity. Not a begrudging or reluctant generosity. Joyfully. And we won't get into the text because we don't have time today, but I want you to look at it sometime this week. Here's the text. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5. I want you to read it. And here's what you're going to see from the church in Corinth. They basically say to the apostle Paul, Jesus has so ambushed us with his grace, his love and grace is so overwhelmingly good, like, can we get in on the offering? Like, we want in on the giving action. Let us give. I read that text and I thought, you know, I've been a pastor now for over 20 years and I've had a lot of conversations with people about wanting to get in on all kinds of ministry stuff, which is wonderful. I started to think, when was the last time something, somebody was begging me to get in on the giving action? And Paul says, actually, if we've been ambushed by grace, that should be one of the first things out of our heart. says, hey, there's some, there's, I need to give. God's given me so much. 
And this is the, the text that's often quoted, see that you excel just as you excel in your love and in your faith, you excel in the grace of giving. That's that whole passage. So joyful generosity. And then thirdly, it should be a consistently. So three responses to how God wants us to give is generously, joyfully, and consistently. 1 Corinthians 16, this text often's overlooked. 15 is always quoted, right? 1 Corinthians 15, it's kind of the Easter weekend text, right? It's the funeral text. It's wonderful hope for those who die in Jesus. It talks about, oh, where, oh, death is your victory. Where is your sting? It's 1 Corinthians 15, hope and joy and power and resurrection life. And you know the first verse following all that resurrection, hope and joy, you know what the first verse of chapter 16 is? Get this. Here's 1 Corinthians 16, Verse one, now about the collection for God's people. <laughs> I thought, well, Paul, after all that resurrection, hope, and joy, and power, he said, hey, now, about the offering. <laughs> That'd be like on Easter Sunday, I talk about all the wonderful joy we have in the resurrection, and then we make sure we talk really clearly about the offering. But Paul sees it as this is just an outflow of resurrection life. Look what he says about it. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day, of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when, it, when I come, no collections will have to be made. My interpretation of what Paul said there, I'm going to pass the plate two or three times if there's not enough in there, so you might as well make sure and get it done right the first time. You already says that, just so I don't take any more collections. I'm going to get around, and we're going to get done what needs to get done, so we can just decide how many times we're going to pass the plate. That's what I hear Paul saying. But if you've Right? If you've been captivated by resurrection life and that joy has overwhelmed your heart, then generously and joyfully and consistently. They were most likely paid in Paul's day once a week. So he said to them, hey, in the frequency in which you're paid is the frequency in which you give. That's what consistently means. So I think application for us today, in whatever frequency we are paid, be it weekly, every other week, monthly, that should be the frequency that we should bring an offering to the Lord. It should be in that rhythm. We take a portion of what he's given us. Let me just say real practically for a moment around here. We take this question often when the finances come up. So let me just be real clear about something. It's super helpful in leading and managing ministry around here. We can do it efficiently and effectively if there is consistency in our giving. So many of you have set up electronic fund withdrawal out of like your savings or checking account, and you've got it set up on a regular pattern through your year. That is so helpful to us in managing ministry around here. Why? Because when at times your attendance patterns ebb and flow, i.e. summer months when you're gone, vacations and this and that, guess then what doesn't take the big hit in trying to manage ministry? The budget doesn't go through bottom out. You tracking with me? So it'd be super helpful to us as you pray through this if you would be willing to set up a regular electronic withdrawal type pattern. Now you can do that, you can just write on your uh, communication card, tear that off, just write electronic giving and we'll, somebody from the finance office will email you and walk you through how to set that up. You can do it with the app, yes, you can click give and there's a place to click um, routine giving there. That's fine too, it's just a two to three percent hit on that that the church loses with all the overhead with credit cards and stuff. So the most efficient use of your money would be electronic giving, uh, automatic withdrawal from your account. 
And then if it's still an act of worship for you to give, you can still bring an offering envelope. You can write the amount on the offering envelope and you can still place it in the offering itself if that's an important part of the act to you to do. But it's so helpful in managing the ebb and flow of ministry around here if consistency is a pattern. Instead of kind of playing catch up when we're gone type stuff, which we appreciate the heart to catch up, it's hard for us to kind of manage being able to move ministry balls down the field when we hit large stretches where people are gone for whatever and then they come back and there's a huge catch up and all those things. Are you tracking with me? So this is all about putting first things first. It's all about saying, God, everything we have is yours. Why is this such a big deal with the Lord? Because he knows how we handle money greatly affects the kind of person we will become. He knows that if he can train his people in a new rhythm, in new habits, in new routines, do you know we get together on Sundays and we sing songs and we get in the word like this and we're gonna receive an offering here in a moment? When we do all of this, you know what that is? It's like indexing our lives to the kingdom of God. It's like training in these new habits. It's sticking the oars in the water and it's rowing against the current of the river that's flowing in our life. And if you haven't figured out yet that you have to row with the oars against the current to flourish in the kingdom of God, that may be an illustration of why it's not going so well. Because if you're not sticking the oars in and rowing on this issue of giving and stewardship, you're going a direction that the river's current is taking you And it's not to the place of joyful generosity and contentment and gratitude with money and stuff. That's not where we'll drift to. And so next week, we'll get in, kind of rubber meets the road. We'll talk about how much, and we'll talk about to whom, and then we'll end with just kind of a personal application for all of us to give this a try for like 90 days and see what God does with us. Because it's actually one of the topics in the Bible where God says, hey, I invite you to put me to the test on this one. They're not very often in scripture where God just says, hey, go ahead and put me to the test on this and see what I do. So let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to bring up topics that are difficult for us to wade into. Thank you for giving us a clear picture of what it means to reset the environment of our interior world, to kind of reverse the curse and flow against the current We pray for your help, Lord, as we open this up and putting first things first. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us see what you see when you look at our money and our possessions and you look at our bank accounts and you look at our our giving patterns and, Lord, could we stand before you and say, God, it's an offering, it's an act of worship given to you. Would you say, well done, good and faithful servant with that? That's our desire. You see where each of us are and we're asking for your help. So we just whisper this prayer now and we say, Lord, help us. Speak to us, help us, lead us. We trust you. May joyful generosity be a hallmark of this body. May that be kind of a legacy and a wake that this body leaves as we live in the kingdom with you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.